You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hello, everyone. Welcome again. It's Noah Rosenfarb from Freedom Business Advisors, the author of Exit, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. Today, I've got a great guest, longtime friend, Tom O'Neill. Tom's an investor and entrepreneur who's got a great background. And, you know, what I was hoping he could share with us today is how he's built freedom into his life so that although he owns a portfolio of companies, he's able to live where he wants and have his time under his control. So, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be here with you now. So why don't we get started with maybe share a little bit of your background and how did you become an investor in businesses and what's been your experience to date? Sure. So I'm not sure exactly where, to be honest with you, but I I acquired the the bug for entrepreneurship, so to speak. Yeah, really, when I was a little kid, I mean, I, I used to I used to run an imaginary business out of my closet when I was three and a half, or so I'm told. And I, uh, you know, I was, just was always starting landscaping business. Mm-hmm. And my first business was real business that actually transacted with customers was a landscaping business when I was a kid, kind of a handyman slash landscaping business. And you know, I just got a taste pretty early in life for the value creation process. And it's sort of, a, I'm kind of enamored by it. And I think it's part of it. Uh, just the idea that you can convert ideas into value if, well, you know, if, if executed well. And, you know, and if you're solving problems that people care about and you can articulate it to them in a, in, in a way that they can understand that value, you can really create wealth, you know, just from, from your mind. And it's just kind of like the modern version of alchemy in, in a way. And so I'm just enamored by the process. And I love the, as you mentioned, the freedom. I mean, I think I got the idea pretty early that, you know, I wanted to live as free a life as possible. And, and you know, for me, that means being able to travel often and, and uh, you know, not sort of be geographically tethered to businesses that, that I begin. So that's kind of the, you know, freedom's been a huge force or a driving force in, in, in my entrepreneurial journey. But I got the bug as a kid, studied at, at Georgetown undergrad and business and really uh, started mixing it up as an entrepreneur pretty pretty early and uh, I was about 22. And so the first kind of, let's call it real business that you were involved in, did you start it or acquire it? So the first, uh, I you know, studied entrepreneurship at, at Georgetown. I was, I was very fortunate to study under Guy. Uh, Walter Benson, who is uh, uh, one of the inventors of the mini bar, you know, there are a few different companies I think that contributed to the IP in that space. But uh, Walter had, had invented, he had a company called Servi Bar and had done really well with it. So he's got really respected because he had, he had really, he was just reading to me out of a textbook. You know, he, he, he had started a pretty substantial business. And, and his idea was, hey, you're, you know, you're going to make mistakes as an entrepreneur. So resist the temptation to start something right after school. Go work for somebody else make some mistakes on, on their nickel, uh, I think is how Walter put it, and, um, you know, just learn, and then, you know, opportunities will naturally, naturally arise. So I worked for Ford Motor for a couple of years, and then and then uh, my first business was really 
an ideal first business. So I, I didn't have to buy it. It was a um, in the medical field, at, at least at this at the time, going back to 1997. A lot of the sales of capital equipment in the medical technology sector were done by independent sales organizations. And I kind of stumbled onto an opportunity to become one of those where I could I could sell other people's products, but really have my own company. And so I thought it was a great way to start because I didn't have to buy anything. I didn't have to really take principal risks. I just had to deliver sales and marketing value to, to these companies. And, uh, and I, what, I, what it came down to is I, I convinced one of those companies to do business with a, a 22-year-old. <laughs> that, was, that was the hard part. And you know, I was able to build a business around that. Where I, I took that one product line, essentially, and then kept adding another product line and kind of eventually built a uh, solution. You know, and I was able to I was able to successfully divest that business a few years later. But it, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of it was a great a great sort of uh, half step. Is how I looked at it. Uh, to entrepreneurship because I, I got to be my own boss, choose my own hours, choose my own strategies. I just had to sell. But I didn't have to take inventory risk. I didn't have to manufacture anything. And stuff. A lot of the marketing was done by these, you know, the manufacturers. So my first business was really as an independent manufacturer's rep for, for a half dozen technology companies focused on the gastroenterology sector. So it was a fantastic way to begin looking back because it was, I learned a lot of the important lessons without having to honestly pay the normal price for it because I, uh, you know, I, was, I didn't, you know, I was able to, Step into a situation where I just had less risk. But what were a couple of the things that you learned along the way in the years that you were operating it, and then as you decided to divest yourself of that position, what was going on in your mind that motivated you to want to exit? And you know, what were some of the lessons learned there as well? There were a couple of things driving my motivation to exit. I was I was uh, living in Silicon Valley at the time. This was, I started the business in '97. Uh, around by 1999, it was very clear to me that something very significant was happening in, in the technology sector, and I felt like I was missing out on it, to be honest with you. But I was part of it. Uh, I was watching these very large companies, be, and, and really interesting companies, more importantly, being created literally around me. And I felt like, God, you know, I, I, I'm capable of doing that, but I'm, I felt like I was over here in this other kind of, uh, in this other sector, uh, just kind of cut off from high technology. So I'm, you know, I'm a technologist, I'm really kind of a kind of a geek at heart, and and so that was I was a little bit bored, and uh, with the business, I felt like I'd kind of figured it out. It, it, it lost a little bit of its luster to me. I was kind of dealing with uh, I wasn't really having a good time running the business. Is what it came down to, I did, you know, the, the customers were, were had some great customers that I still maintain friendships with uh, some of them to this day, but it was kind of a stressful environment. Um, you know, you're always wearing a beeper, so to speak, you know, back in the day. And, and uh, it's, you know, when you're dealing with life and death in some cases, you know, you just always have to be on and ready to support the customer. And it, it, it's it's kind of a, that, that part of it was, was difficult. So a little bit of boredom, a little bit of kind of burnout uh, in the business led me to start looking at other things. And, and I ended up, uh, that, was, that was really driving my divestiture process at that point. And, uh, and I also had an idea for a software company that I was, Incredibly passionate about, and, and it was it was kind of like this is where I, I need to spend my time for the next few years. What did you learn in that first exit that you kind of have carried with you through your experience, you know, to today? A friend of mine put it this way: uh, he, he sold his um, his company for, for about uh, twenty five million bucks, and he's, he's traveling the world now. He um, his wife, and and he he recently wrote an article on his blog, and, and it, the headline was "Hell Yeah or No." And 
And he said, you know, from now on, basically, when he comes to a fork in the road, it's either hell yeah or no. He, you know, if he's not incredibly enthusiastic and it doesn't personally fulfill him on every level, it doesn't just make him scream out and say, yes, then he's just not going to do it. And I, he articulated that much better than I did at the time. But that, that feeling was kind of going on inside me at the time. I just, I'd lost the hell yeah for that business. And I'd acquired hell yeah for, for another business. You know, that, that was one of the big life lessons that I think I began to learn and, and probably honestly, I'm still learning. I don't think, I think it's more of a process than a destination, but is pay attention to what motivates me because what I'm excited about, what I enjoy, I tend to thrive at because I gladly spend more time on those aspects of business. Um, things that I don't enjoy doing, I tend to avoid. You know, those skills don't develop as quickly. And so I started to, it, it was probably the, the most important lesson I learned from that probably was more just philosophical that, you know, when, when I really focus on what I enjoy and what feels, you know, more effortless to me, that's, that's evidence of kind of my personal sort of outstanding skill set. You know, we all do things, I think, uh, a few things maybe better than a lot of other people. We all do a bunch of things about as well as other people. And we all do a bunch of things or a whole another set of skills that we, that we do not as well as other people. And uh, it, that was, I started to begin to pay attention to that around that time, that hey, maybe the more I focus on my real sweet spot of skills, the, the ones I enjoy the most, the ones I'm the best at, the, you know, I think the, the better I'll tend to do. And that's, you know, that, that's where I, I sort of began to learn that because I realized I was doing a bunch of things that I really you know, wasn't that excited about, and I, I needed to change that just for my own personal satisfaction. And so when you're looking at acquisitions to add to your portfolio, do you feel a sense of there has to be passion in the, the product or service of the company you're acquiring, or is the, the passion about the acquisition and the changes you can make to the business to add value? That's a great question. I, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know the answer to that exactly, because I, I I'm just giving you an honest answer. I mean, I, uh, this is very much a process I'm still in the middle of, you know, just it's, it's uh, uh, I've been refining for years and years and years. But I think that a little of both. I do. I've always gotten excited about the idea of money on the table. You know, like when I when I see, uh, you know, as, as an old, old partner used to put it, you know, they're just leaving the money on the table. You know, it's just there's a certain kind of value. You know, one way to look at, at, at sort of hidden value in businesses is there's a term I coined called latent enterprise value, which is. I define as value that can be liberated within a financial quarter with little to no OPEX. And that value exists in almost every business. You know, there's, there's, it comes in a lot of different forms, which we can talk about, but it does exist in almost every business. Every business I own, it, it's there in some quantity. You know, almost any business you'd look at, there's, there, there are these tweaks. And I became fascinated with the idea that there's, there's an opportunity in some businesses to make almost a the equivalent of a chiropractic adjustment to the operation and get a very significant change in, in cash flow. And that is a very exciting idea to me that, that there are businesses out there where relatively, where a series of maybe three or four minor adjustments that you can execute inside of a financial quarter for almost no money and increase EBITDA by 30%. That exists. We all know at some level that it exists. But I think very little time is spent honing the skill set to identify and harvest that kind of value. So that the, the value creation process does drive me to an extent. But now also I'm trying to not just leave it there. I'm trying to have some kind of emotional connection to what the business does. Because for a long time, I would just get enamored by the fact that I knew there was opportunity to create value. 
and I would sort of stop there. And what I'm learning in my just in my entrepreneurial journey that I've now been on it occurred to me for 18 years, which I can't believe it's been that long. The, the further I go, sort of the higher my standards get. You know, now I just now I want to have I really want to feel like the business connects to my life purpose a little bit more at least. You know, not a, it doesn't have to be in the middle of the of, of the strike zone every time, but it's just more of a consideration for me now what the business does than it would have been five years ago. I, I really wouldn't have cared at all what the business did. I would just be more focused on the fact that I could buy it for X and sell it for X plus question mark. Walk me through an example or two of some of the tweaks that you've made in a company that you had and, and the impact. And, and then if you can kind of follow it on with what was the owner's response to that if they were aware of what you've done, what you had done? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the specific, just the first example that comes to mind. And then, um, if it's useful, I can give some observations of some patterns I've seen, you know, which I think would be even more valuable to your listeners. I'll give you a specific example, but also, you know, to some extent, I feel like there's a, there's a model that your listeners can use that they can apply to their own business to look for these, this type of hidden value. If that's, if you think that would be interesting to them. Yeah. Right. Um, so the, so the first one that comes to mind was uh, this is a, a about a seventy five million dollar company in, in top line uh, or no it was seventy seventy million top line um, and it made about three and a half million so the five percent uh, EBITDA and um, the the sales and EBITDA have been almost completely flat for three years and the business owner was approached by some people that wanted to buy this business he wanted to at least entertain it. Hired an investment bank. Investment bank gave him a valuation based on comparables, uh, largely of uh, about $30 million of exit value. And so he had to think, well, is that a good deal? And, and he said, uh, he, he later, he disclosed his thought process to me. So I'll, I'll share it with you guys. He said, you know, I take a million five a year out of this business. Uh, if I sell it for 30 after, after the you know, taxes, and you know, I'm going to put this money into an account that's going to earn, you know, 7%. And, I'm going to make a million and a half dollars a year. And, and so what's the, you know, what's the impetus to sell? Because he was operationally disconnected from the business. So it wasn't like he was burned out. He had professional management. He had a, the owner was a, a very wealthy guy with a $600 million. He, um, so he was, he was a true chairman of this business. He, you know, showed up a couple times a week for an hour, basically, uh, to just kind of check on things. And, but he had professional management in place. So it wasn't burnout or anything like that. He was, he really, he was more of an owner than an owner operator. Uh, which is which is a great place to be, but he, he did start to become excited about the idea of liberating some capital. But he wasn't going to sell this business for thirty million dollars. But he, he basically came back to the investment bank and said, "If you can sell it for forty, I'm interested." And so the investment bank came to uh, one of my businesses called Exodus uh, Capital Advisors, which works with entrepreneurs in that capacity. And uh, and our first job was just to give our professional opinion as to whether that value was there. And what we found was we thought we could enhance as a team EBITDA by about at least a million dollars within the 12 month period based on some, some findings. And in this case, we found what I call structural deficiency, which is uh, basically a missing process. You know, there's a certain set of processes that, that I just as, you know, philosophically, I believe every business should have things like lead generation, customer acquisition, customer retention process. And uh, customer reactivation. You know, when it, when you have you have a thousand customers, and at any given time, some of them are deviating from baseline purchasing behavior. You know, if the average customer orders once a quarter, and you look at your customer list, I guarantee you, there's some of those customers haven't ordered in the last quarter. The question is, is there a process for identifying when that behavior is changing and doing anything about it? 
in this business, there wasn't, even though it was, a, you know, by, I think by any measure, a very valuable business, very successful entrepreneur, uh, but it, it basically had a leak in it because when a customer left, nobody noticed, and it's because they had 20,000 customers. So it was just easy to, you know, it was easier for 500 of them to slink off into, into the distance without being noticed unless they were a huge customer. So one of the things we identified was a huge number. I think it was about five or 6,000 customers who had deviated from let's call it baseline purchasing behavior, which I think we the average customer ordered about 7.2 times per year, as I recall. So we agreed, okay, anybody who hasn't ordered for a year should go into this gain-sharing bucket that we'd set up to try to you know, recapture them. And basically what we did is we just contacted them, <laughs> asked them why they left, and, and we got about 25% of them back, and it was, you know, they ate at 800,000 of EBITDA the first year. I mean, it's just Really simple stuff in some cases, but it can be it can be difficult to find. Uh, you know, there's a lot of database work and kind of heavy lifting and, and uh, analysis that goes into that. But once you see it, I mean, what to do sometimes can be can be really obvious. It's sort of like uh, finding gold coins on the beach. You know, it's like it can take a while to find them, but once you do, I mean, you just pick them up. <laughs> and so, what was the owner's reaction to that? Did did he? Is it something that just was never in his sights, or he never took the time to look down and, and see the gold that was buried, you know, a couple inches under the ground? Yeah, yeah. First, uh, I mean, I think, honestly, his first reaction was anger at his management team. And he was upset that, you know, it sort of blew his mind that there could be $800,000 of EBITDA. And mind you, this is kind of a recurring process. So, I mean, there's a, there's a reasonable expectation that this is something they could, they could keep doing. So, you, you, you know, if they're valued at nine times earnings, basically what happened is I just showed him about, you know, in, in a few months of work that there's $7.2 million of shareholder value just sitting there waiting to be harvested by somebody. So I think a, a reasonable and natural reaction was was anger at the management team, but it really wasn't their fault. You know, I, I, I said to him, look, I said, you know, this is kind of a marketing question, isn't it? And, you know, and he agreed and I said, well, how many marketing people do you have? The answer was really zero. I mean, he didn't have a VP of marketing. There was really no one charged with the process of finding this stuff. And so, guess what? It was never found. And so, the first reaction was anger, but he got over that. And obviously, it transmuted into uh, into excitement that, you know, he was that much closer to where he wanted to be from a valuation standpoint. So, let's move on to a different topic around freedom, because I know that's something that uh, you've done an expert job and it's been a life's uh, task for you to acquire businesses that don't require your presence on a regular basis to operate and continue to grow. So how has that come about? And maybe, you know, in contrast to when you're 22 running a medical device company wearing the pager and, and being accessible all the time, what are some of the things you've done to make changes both in the business and to your own daily routine to make sure that that could happen? Well, and again, you know, just to be honest to your listeners, it's a process I'm still going through. I mean, I, I all these things are, uh, I find, just things that you just continue doing and continue getting better at rather than something you just figure out and you just forever get it. Because I find, I, I constantly find that I'm finding, you know, that I'm doing something in a suboptimal way or, or there's some way to do these things better. But you mentioned buying businesses. Buying businesses is a lot easier to do because usually there's management intact. For listeners who are, you know, obviously in M&A or, or, or want to build up an alternative asset portfolio of their own, it's easier to do if you if you find a company with good management and buy it. Uh, you know, leaving that management in place, supporting them that, that that's in some ways the easiest way to to, to be passive. Most of my time has been trying to extract myself from things that I've started where I had some kind of operational role, and I'm like, how do I get out of this? Because <laughs> I don't I don't really I've learned over time I really don't like running companies, you know, and right. uh, so that's 
see. I think some people really love it. And that's what makes the world go around is that we can trade. You know, some people, not everybody likes to do the same thing. And thank God for that. But I, most of my time has been trying to get out of things that I've started. And, and the lessons I've learned so far, if I could distill them down, it's, you know, every business, uh, Peter Drucker said business is basically two things. Innovation, having something of value to bring to the marketplace, some kind of solution, and marketing, uh, articulating the value proposition to prospective customers and trying to induce them to avail themselves of that value. So if business is kind of, you know, sales and service, you know, it might be a, a, a sort of an overly simplistic way to think about it. If business is selling and then, you know, making promises and then keeping promises, you know, if the entrepreneur want, ever wants to be free, they can't be in the promise making or keeping business themselves, you know, or another metaphor I've used is like throwing the ball and catching the ball. You know, this kind of a business is basically an amalgamation of transactions. Right. There's, there's just a bunch of trades happening that create value for the customer and, and value for the business. And if the entrepreneur is actively involved in, in that trading process in some way, if they're, if they're the key, if they're the number one salesman in the company, essentially, if they bring in all the big deals, they're stuck. You know, they're, they're, they're just too important to that business. So they've got to find a way to get out. If they're the master, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs end up being kind of the, the fulfillment person. They're the inventor. They're, the, they're always tweaking the manufacturing process. And I can think of dozens of friends and you know, clients over the years that fit each of these profiles. Usually, entrepreneurs get stuck somewhere because they're they're the man or the woman, you know, for that for that area. How to get out? It's very difficult, more intellectually and emotionally than physically. But for me, it's just it, it, I, I adopted a mindset of every time I found myself doing something repetitive, I thought, okay, by definition, anything repetitive is important to this business, probably in some way. So anytime I find myself doing something repetitive, I just adopted a philosophy that this is the last time I'm ever going to do this. And I would uh, turn on like a screen recording software. I would doc, I would narrate what I was doing. And then that became the training program for whoever I delegated to immediately after I finished that task. I would just, I would identify somebody in my business or I would, or a contractor, a vendor, somebody. And I'd just give it to them. I'd say, here's a half hour video. From now on, you get these spreadsheets and this is how to process them. Yeah, it was like an easy hack for getting out of a task without having to build a whole operations manual every time. You know, just, just record what you're doing. And, and that way, whoever your delegate is, they've got, there's kind of two pieces of magic there. One, you're completing the task from beginning to end. So there's really, there shouldn't be a lot of questions because it was successfully completed on camera with complete, you know, with narration and explanation. So there shouldn't be a lot of questions. There may be some, but most of them be headed off by the video. And the best part is it's off your clock as an entrepreneur. So if you delegate it to somebody, if you have any questions, first thing is go back, go back and rewatch the video. And that way I'm paying for a half an hour of my employee's time instead of a half an hour of my time. And, and sort of it's, it's little by little, I started getting, be able to have experience a lot more freedom by doing that sort of thing to dig out of operational roles that I would find myself in. But I still, you know, again, honestly, I still find myself in operating roles all the time. And now it's just, I try to notice when that's happening and then re-engage this process of, and digging out one task at a time. If you have other people doing the work, which is great, obviously that's creating value because uh, somebody else could step into your shoes as an owner and hopefully not have a, a technical role to fill. So when when would you know if it's the right time to sell a company that you own? When you know you're not actively involved in the day to day operations and you're not your passion might not be a requisite for making money. That's a great question. I mean, I think it's a it's a if you're so you're saying. If you're passive on a business already, if you've already successfully extracted yourself, so for a business where I'm passive now, when would I decide I wanted to exit? 
Yeah, and 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 what do you think, or what's motivated you in the past to exit businesses where you might have had a more passive role rather than an active role? So you didn't need your time. It was really yeah. a question of, of capital. I think it's in some ways that question is it sort of points to its own answer, which is it's a question of capital. And if you're if you've got you know let's say the first thing is know approximately what the likely exit value is. And so there's a uh, and I'm, I know you're uh, an advocate for this as well. I think the uh, you know sort of getting regular appraisals on you know, any assets of substance. It's a good idea to get them appraised regularly because part of the decision making process really is I've got X amount of dollars over here. Do I have a higher and better use for those dollars? So sort of square one is what what would those dollars be, right? If we don't know what a likely expect or reasonable expectation of value of exit value is, it's kind of hard to make decisions. Because we don't really, you know, if, I, if there's 10 million locked up there, that may affect my decision making differently than if there's 5 million locked up in that business, uh, you know, in terms of net worth. So it is a good idea to get them appraised regularly. But for me, it's, it's a question of capital. You know, what, what do I have a higher and better use? What's my effective rate of return? So it starts with valuation. Let's say that we value business and, and it's, it's been a, this third party valuation comes in at 10 million. Well, now my question is, well, what sort of return am I getting on that $10 million? Right. Between, you know, what sort of passive income am I taking out of that business? What sort of equity appreciation am I experiencing with that business? I look at it in the same way that a mutual fund manager looks at their portfolio of public equities. Just how is this, how is this investment performing for me as an investment? And if it's underperforming alternatives that I think are better on a risk adjusted basis, that's where I begin looking for the exits. Unless there's, uh, unless I believe that's a, that's a short term problem that can be easily yeah. fixed. Or unless I believe that there's some sort of non-economic benefit that I'm getting, which is often the case. You know, there's perks of owning businesses, right? I mean, let's face it, there's, there's, there's perks. Uh, I have a, a friend who's a, owns a pretty big private equity firm, and they bought a, a, a chain of six very high-end steakhouses. And, you know, he said to me, look, I'm, we're never going to sell this business. <laughs> we're never going to sell this business. It's like, it's just too much fun. And, you know, we really don't care if we make money with it. Honestly, we don't want to lose money, but we're, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not the, it's not the driving force. It's just so fun to own because these are real hot spots in the cities that they're in. And it's a great place for them to entertain, to bring, you know, entrepreneurs they want to woo or whatever. And so it's a, there's an economic, uh, or, or sort of a less obvious economic benefit that comes from owning that. So that, you know, that just filters into their calculus, you know, that, um, it doesn't really matter for the IRR, but, you know, whenever it's, whenever it seems like it's, not worth it either because it's uh and it's a very personal decision but for me for me it's whenever it seems like it's not worth it either because it's too much of a of a hassle uh to be involved with that business a business has some kind of you know businesses for me the hot buttons would be businesses where the regulatory landscape is just really getting worse and worse and worse it's just, you know the paperwork the liability i start looking for the exits because it just you know in some cases if you don't have a billion dollar balance sheet you know it's, it can be difficult to to be in an industry where there's, you know, tons of regulations are kind of being imposed on all the existing players in that business, usually by somebody up, up the food chain. That, that can be one thing. So fun is a factor, but really I, I try to be as dispassionate as possible and, and look at it more the way Buffett would, you know, and say, look, I've got X amount of dollars here. What, what's my, between my dividend and my equity appreciation, is this, you know, do I have a better place for this capital? And if I have a much better place or a much more fun place for that capital, Based on my my personal plans, you know, I'd start looking at it. But the challenge is, you know, it's not like flipping a switch. You know, it can take you a couple of years or or more to exit. So 
So let's talk about that. that because I think one of the things that I advocate and, and, you know, I know it's uh, part of your ethos is that businesses should be sale ready. They should be operated in a manner that if you do want to flip the switch and market a business for a sale or transfer, that there's not going to be, you know, the three years of work that you have to do to get it ready. You've already done those three years of work. So what are the things you recommend owners would do in, in almost every business case that you've seen to help help get their company in a position where they have a better decision-making tree when it comes to exit value, exit readiness, and uh, the ability to transfer. Yeah, yeah, you brought up a great point that I hadn't thought of exactly in this way before, but this is work that cannot be avoided. This work will be done. The work of transitioning you out of the business will be done at some point or another if you you ever sell the business. For most customers, they, they leave it to the last minute, most of us, and, and, and I've done this as, as many times as, as, as anyone else, or, you know, I'm guilty of this myself, so I'm not pointing the finger. A lot of times we leave it till the end, uh, and so we end up being on a three-year employment contract where essentially the, the new owner has to pick our brain for three years to figure out how to get us out of the business. If you do it in advance, there's a clear benefit. You know, you can, you can actually walk away when you sell because you're really not important to the business. And I've been in both situations where I was incredibly important. I've been in situations where, I've, where I could literally hand the keys and walk away and, hey, call me if you need me. And the latter is much more fun. So, But it's really just a process of, uh, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, go, it's a process of operational disconnection, and it's, it's a step-by-step process. You know, some entrepreneurs might have 50 things they do for the business operationally. Some might have 500. Some might have five. It's really, the, the for me, it, the, the, the sort of acid test for where, where it's a, where you, a good destination is to be is if you didn't walk into the office for the next 90 days and just kind of disappeared, would you still have a business? Would it be growing? Would it be flat? Would it be in trouble? And I think most entrepreneurs have a pretty good feel for where they are with that. And so that's, that's sort of the beginning. Could I walk away for 90 days? The answer is no. Why not? And that's, that's, those are the places you need to begin to hand off those processes to somebody else or eliminate the processes or replace them with software or a vendor or something. But just getting the, so the, the, what you do to disconnect is less important than that you do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you're a, a wealth of knowledge around automation and process improvement. So maybe now that we're kind of at the tail end of our time together, you could share some of your favorites. You mentioned screencasting as a way to build an operations manual. That's something we do in our businesses, and I found it's a, you know, a really effective way to get your operations manual done and have it recorded and you know, improve process improvement and, and work delegation, especially a lot of the businesses I own. We outsource things to people that we never meet in person, so the only way to communicate via that, you know, video chat. What are some of the other kind of best practices that you've seen in technology improvements? Well, I mean, I think it's the best time to be an entrepreneur in history. I mean, because the tools available for building businesses, but also automating them are, I mean, they've never been more plentiful or cheaper. And so screencasting is a great hack uh, for, for an ops manual. And you can, you can really, it's a great starting point. It's easy. The, the uh, employment marketplaces, uh, Odesk, Elance, there, there are you know, really literally dozens of others that uh, where you can you can pick up talented people from all over the world who can who can perform you know sort of you can micro delegate to you can give them one task that takes them a half hour a week and and they're happy with that you know you can you can find good people willing to do that so I, I follow a, you know I came up with an acronym more for myself than for others but I've used it with clients I advise as well which is called Save you know, Save Yourself <laughs> as an entrepreneur. 
And uh, the first step is is actually the E, uh, which is eliminate. You know, so if I, if I find myself doing something where I'm, I'm doing this over every week, I do a little bit of X. Uh, let me. I should probably choose a different variable. Actually, <laughs> every every week I do a little bit of Y. And the first question I'll ask myself is: Is this important? Does the business does this need to happen? Because shockingly, you know, I, probably ten or twenty percent of the time I look and I'm like, why am I even doing this? This really doesn't. It's not something I need to be doing for the for the business. And so, in in some cases, I think we have to face up to the fact that we're we're doing things that aren't just aren't particularly important in some cases. So some things can be eliminated, and it's good to notice. Obviously, that's a that's a great thing when you can find it. If I can't eliminate it, I want to automate it. So it's A and save. So the uh, so there, there are a tremendous number and a growing number of software tools that can essentially replace humans. And, and that is my preference. Anytime I have a task, if I can give it to a computer, that's my preference. The computer works 24-7. It doesn't complain. It doesn't, you know, generally doesn't forget, you know, the technology is working properly. It executes the task exactly the same way every time. So you get a tremendous amount of quality. And there are tools now that can automate, you know, drip marketing, like there's tools like Infusionsoft, Salesforce, and others. There there are add-ons to those platforms that will literally do a lot of the work of a marketing manager for you. I mean, once they're programmed, they'll, they'll literally do the work. So automation, we, we could we could spend five podcasts just on that subject of what are some of the best tools out there. So tell me how deep you want to go down that rabbit hole, but it, it, it's it's a fairly deep rabbit hole. Um, but there are a number of tools, and if you if you basically type in your task into Google and then put automation after it, you're probably going to get some some companies and vendors and service providers that do that sort of thing. So, so if I can't eliminate it, I try to automate it with some tools. If I can't automate it, then I'll try to vendorize it. That's the so I, I, my bias, and this is just my bias, but if I can hire a vendor over an employee, that's my preference. So if I can't automate it, I want to vendorize it because if I hire a vendor to do a particular function, I just get more accountability is my experience. You know, if, I, if I hire them to, to do a certain task and they don't do it, there's no expectation that they'll be paid until the, until the deliverable is delivered. With an employee, you can have them on the payroll for six months before you figure out that they, they, they can't deliver for you. And, you know, you pay that plus federal taxes on top of it. And so I, I find it a riskier proposition to hire people than hire vendors. So for anything that's non-essential, that's absolutely not mission critical, I try to put it outside either to a, a contractor or a company. And then the S is if I, if I, if I must give it to a person, which is the last resort, I try to systematize it at least. I'll, I'll, I'll have checklists and just essentially try to introduce as much of that quality control as possible so that employees can literally paint by number versus having to be talented artists because it's harder to find artists than it is to follow, find people who can follow instructions. And well, so I try to give them those instructions. That's brilliant. I love it. And I'm, I'm going to adopt it and uh, give you credit where credit's due. So thank you for that. What else would you like to share with our listeners before we wrap? Well, that's, I mean, again, we could go on and on, but I mean, I think, I think it's a worthwhile, I'd like to suggest to your listeners that, that they, if they, if they don't find themselves on this journey already where they're trying to operationally graduate to owner. And again, this is something I'm, I'm always doing. It's not like something I've, you know, completely figured out and, you know, never have to deal with again. I, I'm, I find I'm constantly being pulled back into businesses. So I, I'd like to suggest that it's a very worthwhile pursuit. It's, it's given me, a, you know, the ability to, as we have this conversation, I'm a thousand miles from my nearest business and, and, and haven't, uh, haven't really uh, been there for a couple of years. And, and it's, it is possible to do. Uh, and I'd like to just suggest it's a very worthwhile endeavor. It's, it's challenging at times, but, uh, you know, for, for those of your listeners who are entrepreneurs who are in the situation, there is light at the end of the tunnel uh, in terms of, you know, 
only either you're completely operationally disconnecting from the business, um, which can be harder, or at least doing the things that you really enjoy the most, and and and, and that alone can be a huge uh, lifestyle benefit. So, uh, you know, I highly recommend you know pursuing this course of, of endeavor as an entrepreneur, and and the dividend you'll get is it'll be your business will be the less important an entrepreneur is to a business, the more valuable that business tends to be because you know a, buy, a prospective buyer doesn't have to worry what happens if. Tom gets hit by a bus, right? Yeah. If, Tom, if Tom's irrelevant to the business, then, you know, then it's, it's just easier to sell. So, so I, w- I wish everybody luck with that process. And if, if people, uh, uh, you know, feel free to uh, give my contact information out if people have questions or, or uh, you know, uh, want, want some additional insights. Uh, you know, your listeners are free to contact me. Yeah. Where, where should uh, where should people get a hold of you? LinkedIn, you know, or uh, email, phone. What's the best? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Tom O'Neill. Uh, my uh, holding company is called Libertas Capital. That's really the domicile for our private equity investments. And people can email me at uh, the letter T, as in Tom, at libertascapital.com. Great. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. And to all our listeners, we appreciate you tuning in. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, share this podcast with a friend, and email me at noah at freedomadv if you have any suggested guests for the show or questions. We look forward to hearing from you, and please join us again. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.